Welcome once again to this edition of the Yoga and Body Image podcast. I'm excited to announce that today's guest is Sarah Joy Marsh, who is the author of the newly published book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, A Yoga Approach to Reclaiming Your Relationship to Your Body and Food, recently published by Shambhala Press. Uh, Sarah Joy Marsh, a yoga teacher, therapist, and author, is a vibrant, compassionate catalyst for transformation to those who suffer from addictions, in particular disordered eating patterns and emotional eating. The combination of her ability to identify when a conditioned mind crowds out clear thinking and to inspire the courage to bring insight into action is outlined in her book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing. The book Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. The book uh, inspires the courage to bring insight into action. It allows her knowledge of powerful yoga and mindfulness tools, her perspective on the terrain uh, in the stages of recovery, and the tools to make use along the way of recovery uh, are outlined in her methodology uh, in her book. Um, her 25 plus years of training and facilitation background includes transpersonal counseling, art therapy, and community mental health, the psychology of yoga, Ayurveda, and rehabilitative yoga. Committed to supporting marginalized populations and using yoga for social justice, Sarah Joy founded two nonprofits, Living Yoga and the Daya Foundation. Uh, a sought-after teacher of teachers, she leads multiple 200-hour and 500-hour teacher trainings and yoga therapy professional trainings in the Northwest, international retreats, and is a regular instructor at Kripalo and Brighton Bush Hot Springs. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. I really, really enjoyed reading this book. I really couldn't put it down. Um, it was such a uh, insightful blend of um, healing, um, understandings of various addictive patterns and disordered eatings, and yoga as a path of self-love. Uh, really beautifully written. Thank you. I had a lot of fun writing it, and it it really took me back to my own history mm -hmm. and to the honor I have to work with women for the last 15 years. And I got to integrate their experience, my experience, and all my time on the yoga mat to put together the book. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the journey towards writing the book? What led you to do it? Well, I actually got a phone call from Shambhala. At the time, I was working on a book about yoga and social justice that I was going to self-publish mm -hmm. based on my work in the prison system and the rehab system. But then Shambhala called my yoga studio and they said, we saw your name in the Kripala Yoga Center catalog. We looked at the description of what you're doing and we're wondering if you'd be willing to write a book about this topic. So I like to say when Shambhala calls, you put down the other project and pick up the pen, as it were. Absolutely. Yeah. And I felt really delighted to have the topic be of interest to such uh, a reputed and um, honorable press. Mm -hmm. I've been reading Shambhala's books for a long time, and I really respect their authors. And so I was quite honored and delighted to be invited to do this project. Yeah, they published some amazing stuff, and uh, I'm really glad that your book is now a, a part of it. Um, what are some of the, I mean, you outlined so many amazing um, uh, parallels between yoga philosophy and healing from um, various addictions, specifically disordered eating. One of the things you highlight early on is this concept of hunger. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about how you think of hunger in both in terms of how it catches us into disordered eating or eating disorders, but then also how it might be a path towards healing? Yeah, yeah. I, I often reflect on the concept of hunger because it's primal to who we are as a species and to all the species that need to ingest something to nourish themselves. Our hunger is both for food and also for the, 
the biological imperative to survive by attaching to other people. So we have this hunger, obviously, for the nutrient input that we need to make the body strong and vital and clear and healthy, but we also have a hunger for connection so that our early life, we get taken care of. And sometimes that hunger gets satiated by our care providers, our parents, our community, our school system, our church community. And sometimes those hungers don't get met because upstream in our parents or teachers and upstream from them, their hungers weren't met. So that this like, chronic intergenerational hunger is coming downstream and we're born into that. That's the case in my own family system. And so the, the hungers that I could satisfy in early life were met by patterns that I couldn't keep sustaining, like perfectionism. That met my hunger to be seen in school and to be competent and to be uh, adored by the teachers. But it didn't meet my hunger for creativity or spontaneity or ease. And my hunger for being held and nourished at home was a little more than vacuous. It, it was relatively absent. And so I would turn to food for that particular hunger at home. And my twin sister and I had similar behaviors, but both in secret. I knew she was doing it, she knew I was doing it, but we weren't talking about it as a family system. So even my hunger for transparency or honesty or connection in the most basic sense, that wasn't met in my home system. So food did a lot of good for me at a time when I needed something to satiate or soothe that part of me that was anxious or restless or confused or overwhelmed. And I think those hungers really arise when we don't have the deepest hungers met, like for nourishment, connection, love, and belonging. And then we can meet those needs with food. I like to say to my yoga students, the good news is food works, and the bad news is that food works. The even better news is that food only works for so long, and yoga works forever. It's an ongoing process that can keep nourishing you in all the stages of your life and the stages of your recovery. Yeah, I, I really um, love how you talk about hunger as being uh, something that is essential to our humanity uh, and that it comes in a lot of different forms uh, and that sometimes we use some skills um, such as perfectionism or other kinds of things to feed a hunger and that those tools serve us at times. They do. Um, but they also become empty eventually or um, the... Uh, the satiation that you mentioned is short-lived or yeah. and or it it comes with a price of of self-harming or shame which you talk a lot about in the book a mm -hmm. price that yoga doesn't come with typically right. right um that and that's something i found in my own life when i was struggling with some of those things i could master it for a short period of time but the fallout of shame would then send me back to the cycle and and i was hungry uh for the beauty and wisdom and self-honoring that yoga gave me. Um, mm -hmm. And that's eventually what drew me into that path of healing. Um, can you talk a little bit about shame and how yoga helps us meet that? Yeah. In fact, I talk a lot about shame in my life because I'm, I'm helping people to bring it out of isolation as a topic and into community as a way to heal. So in the, when I was saying about hunger in early life, one of the dilemmas that we face is that we have what I call a biological imperative, and we also have a spiritual imperative. And our biological imperative is to survive, and primarily through attachment to other people. To do that, we have to go through the processes of compromising some aspects of who we are so that we can belong 
to those most immediate and vulnerable circumstances in our youth. So a person might put aside their competence or their spontaneity or their silliness, or they might, they might put aside their bravery or their intelligence because it threatens somebody else. So in putting that aside, we're at that moment betraying something about ourselves. And in those early betrayals, shame can slip right in because we're being formed by other people's approval or disapproval and the, the, the perceived disapproval because we actually can't read people all that well when we're very young. We don't have the cognition for it. So we're reading perceived disapproval or perceived approval, perceived love or perceived upset. And as we read the more negative of those, we internalize the experience of shame. It's also, I think it's helpful to understand that this isn't just that we aren't smarter. Our brains actually work like this. We're born in the earliest part of life with just the right hemisphere of the brain functioning. And that hemisphere of the brain, its job is to scan for safety or danger, connection or threat to connection. And it's also biased to negative emotions like shame and anxiety. So while that part of the brain is developing and we're looking out at the world and it's looking back at us, we're internalizing what people can nurture us with. We're internalizing facial expressions and voice tone and how immediately needs get met or don't get met. If we're cold, wet, or hungry and we don't get our needs met, we, we have to internalize at some point that it's about us. Even though we don't cognitively say to ourselves with language skills, this is about me, the internalized sense of that can go very deep. Then in about two and a half or three years old, our left brain comes on board and starts to help us have a narrative about who we are. Well, if shame was internalized at a young place in life, the narrative will start including shame. And it, that can be like an undercurrent in your life, in spite of, like for me, that perfectionism was highly successful. I was a straight-A student. I was the first chair trumpet player in not just my high school, but in the state of New York. And I was the MVP on the field hockey team. And I just excelled in all these ways. But the undercurrent, the ongoing like bedrock of my life just seemed to be steeped in shame. And I was trying to outrun it using body image, body checking, food restriction, certain foods that were more soothing and secretive than other foods, just trying to numb the anxiety that I was experiencing. When I realized I was really having an ongoing discussion with shame, that was a huge revelation, which is why I think it's such an important part of our discussion that we don't isolate about it and we start having more community dialogues about it and bring it out of hiding, as it were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, when I was reading your book, your story, though it is very different than mine, also sounded very familiar. Um, mm -hmm. the, the undercurrents of shame, the, um, the integration of shame into a narrative of self, and the way that you really explained how that process maybe works, um, and some of the tools that you presented really made sense to me. One mm. of the things I loved about your book, I'm a, I'm a visual learner, and you are clearly an artist uh, or has, have worked um, with art in your art therapy training. And so one of the things that really worked for me as I was reading your book were the really visual tools that you offer, not just yoga, but the uh, other metaphors that you use mm. uh, in the sort of healing process, because your book doesn't offer just a an explanation of how this works. It also offers uh, a path towards recovery, a methodology. Would you mind choosing just one of the many in your book and talking about it for us? Sure. Yeah. Well, the what I put together there, and thank you for that. It's very, um, uh, it's a very 
integrated perspective on what I wrote in the book. I really appreciate that you're a critical thinker and you can feel all that coming together in the book. I really wanted it to be a conversation between me and the reader. I'm always delighted to hear when that's happened for someone. And so just speaking about shame a moment ago, one of the essential life skills that we don't learn from food is called moving from love, not shame. So I put four skills together in the book, getting in the gap, getting comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, moving from love, not shame, and then personal buoyancy. And the concept of moving from love, not shame is really to learn to change the lens through which we're looking both at ourselves and others, to change that lens to love, to see the, the innate earnestness and innocence, the, the good-heartedness that was intended all along, and that got crowded out by the experience of shame. So it's a little bit like weeding a garden. If you can weed enough of the shame out, you start to see what's emerging underneath those weeds and what's wanted to emerge all along. So when I'm talking with students about this lens change, we do it right in the body in the yoga class, really looking at what is the dialogue you're now having with yourself on your yoga mat. And because yoga has exploded as an industry, I often have to make specific recommendations about where someone will go for their yoga practice. Because sometimes the dialogue on the yoga mat is actually being perpetuated towards mm -hmm. lower self-esteem, less helpful body image, more competition, uh, more angst and striving. And Absolutely. We need the yoga community to be helping women outlive the experience of shame or body image by promoting the conversation that's more from love than shame. Mm -hmm. And yoga talks about that as anandamaya kosha, means the, the deepest, most indwelling sense of radical belonging. Like unconditional acceptance. You know that your very self is not threatened by your own inner dialogue. I sometimes call that attitude non-self-abandoning. <laughs> I know that at the very bottom of my thoughts, at the, at the deepest place of any sort of pain or suffering, I will fundamentally not choose to self-abandon again. And that's something that we have to learn to internalize because we already practice self-abandoning repeatedly before we get into the path of recovery. So we flesh that out together when I work with my students. Because I'm creating a new lens, but also a language culture and a body culture. And we're really trying it on. Many times women are trying it on for the first time. They've either not gotten into recovery, not had a conversation, not had a yoga class, and have told nobody else about their eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So I really respect their courage to, to speak up and try something on. And I am honored to work with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine and what, um, what I understand from both your book and the research I've done about your work, you've really um, touched a lot of people's lives and their healing process. Um, one of the things you said, that that concept of moving from love, not shame, it was one of the critical components in my own healing process. And mm. um, it was a lot messier than it might have been had I had this book. I mean, it would have been messy anyway, because that's the part of the process. You know, it, yeah. you have to unlearn old behaviors and replace them with kinder, uh, um, more resilient ones. But um, I love how you outline this. And, and one of the things you say, it's interesting, I say this in my women's studies classes a lot too, in not necessarily in the context of disordered eating, but in the context of all these harmful messages so many mar marginalized groups learn about their groups or other groups. And you write in your book that your job in the journey of recovery is to stay aware of when you're moving from a place of conditioned mind or when you're moving from a place of wise mind. Mm -hmm. I love yeah. that. And I'm wondering, um, how, how do you feel the difference between the two? 
in your own heart, in your own body. I, I think they do feel different, but I'm interested yeah. on your perspective on that. Yeah, I think they're very different also. And I often have students check what I call their, their body radar screen. Mm -hmm. So what is your nervous system saying or doing right now? Mm -hmm. What's your heart rate doing? Did you just get thirsty? Do you feel suddenly restless or overwhelmed? So if you look at conditioned mind and wise mind sitting near each other, sometimes they're coexisting and you have to make a choice between them. When you're at the place where they can coexist, you're not overwhelmed by conditioned mind anymore and you're aware that wise mind exists. Well, prior to that, most of us live with conditioned mind and therefore we also have what I call conditioning in the nervous system. So it, it might be prone towards reactivity or lethargy or restlessness or doubt. Those are considered some of the obstacles in the path of yoga, by the way. There actually are nine obstacles on the path of yoga, and those are four of them. So if that's what we have experienced in our nervous system, that's our norm. And we might even think that reaction is actually our instinct or our intuition. We won't know that it's reaction unless we start examining that I've had this thought before. I've had this reaction before. I actually know how this plays out. And I've had this nervous system feeling before where my adrenal glands might be pumping through my system right now and my nerve endings might be a little bit raw and I'm about to make the same decision I usually make to soothe this uncomfortable experience. As I get to the place where wise mind and conditioned mind coexist, I can start choosing to be comfortable being uncomfortable just long enough for the nervous system flush to die out a little bit, to go down in volume and for a wise mind to just be sitting there revealing itself. We don't actually have to cultivate wise mind in the sense that our body intelligence already exists. We do have to remember it. We have to promote it. So in that sense, we're not making it, but we are having to garden it, as it were. We should keep nourishing it. So it becomes more on our radar screen and less like a, a good luck moment. It's like we hope it's going to happen. More that we know we can bring ourselves back to wise mind and less often in conditioned mind. Mm. And how does empathy and resilience help us cultivate that garden of wise mind? Mm -hmm. Well, we are social creatures by the development of our brain as humans. And we actually need each other. As I was saying, our biological imperative is to survive. Well, our spiritual imperative is to thrive. To thrive, to like know ourselves as this expansive possibility of love or grace or wisdom. And because that's a possibility for us, and yet we're wired to survive with others, we're also wired to thrive with others. So that social brain might pick up on somebody else's suffering and have a moment of compassion or empathy and realize that it's mutual. That it's not just from me to you that I might experience that, but it's, there's a reciprocity between us. With that quality of empathy, our resilience increases not just metaphorically, but actually literally, because in the new science of polyvagal theory, pardon me for the neuroscience inserts, but it might be helpful to somebody who's listening, there's a, a process about your vagus nerve, vagus spelled V-A-G-U-S, not like Las Vegas, and the vagus nerve is called the nerve of compassion. And we're actually co-regulating that experience, one nervous system to the other. So if your nervous system collapses into shame and anxiety, in relationship to me, mine is also more likely to do that. Then we can both escalate or we can implode. We could have a downward spiral. But if your nervous system or mine can choose compassion or empathy, we're more likely to uplift each other. So we, we can both step into that nervous system that says yes to altruism, benevolence, empathy, and resilience. 
And the more we cultivate it, the more it becomes our, our baseline and our biochemistry. So I say that because it's not just that our life value might be for empathy or to be more resilient. And empathy isn't the same as pity and resilience isn't just toughing it out. But it's more than life values. It's also the lived experience in your body, in your biochemistry, in your visceral organs, in your innervation as well. Does that help some? It does. It does. And I, um, I like how you connect sort of individual lived experience to a sort of communal and societal lived experience. Um, mm -hmm. I think that they're so mutually informing um, or mutually um, um, harmful, depending on which route we end up going. Um, I yeah. hate to say it, but we are approaching the end of our time. This is just such a, an interesting topic in your model and methodology and your stories are so rich. Um, before I wrap up officially, do you have anything you'd like to say to our listeners or your potential readers? Well, I do think if you're new to yoga practice, it's really helpful to look at interviewing a yoga teacher or a studio before you go, asking fundamental questions like, are there mirrors? Is it a heated classroom? What is the pace of the class? Do the teachers know something about regulating the nervous system? Do the teachers understand breathing as a tool for self-soothing? Is it a fast-paced class? You know, to actually ask the question so that you could walk into a yoga class and have a potentially more successful, not less successful experience. It is the case that for us as humans, if we try something on and it doesn't work, we aren't likely to go back to it. So I'm, I'm trying to help students wisely choose where they practice their yoga. And if people have questions, they're welcome to contact me directly. I'm happy to help facilitate that understanding of how to practice yoga. And yoga as a practice is not just asana, which is what we see the photographs of mostly. As a practice, it really is a psycho-spiritual, neurophysiological, biological event that promotes the best possible vitality and clear hearts and minds. A lot of people are getting an adrenaline rush from their yoga practice right now, and then that's not promoting what I'm talking about when I say what yoga can do for you. So we don't want more adrenaline, we want more vitality. We want more interconnection, not more competition. So we have to choose wisely in that case. Mm -hmm. and that's one of the many ways in which your work dovetails with the work of the Yoga Body Image Coalition to sort of mm -hmm. um, broaden the understanding of what yoga is in mainstream U.S. Western culture and to make sure that people who are looking for something in particular, in this case, a certain kind of healing, don't end up in a space that is actually quite counter to that healing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's been yeah, a real a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Sarah Joy Marsh has been our guest today. She is the author of the fabulous Hunger, Hope, and Healing, A Yoga Approach to Reclaiming Your Relationship to Your Body and Food, a book recently published by Shambhala Press. I highly recommend that you read it. You can also learn more about her work and her trainings on her website, and you can contact her directly through that website as well. Thank you so much, Sarah Joy. Thank you very much as well, Beth. Namaste. Namaste.